This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, welcome once again to the DLR Cast, aka we're fans but not fanboys podcast. I'm joined as always with my good friend Darren. What's happening, Darren? You know, I think I'm pretty good because aren't we uh, officially the number one David Lee Roth podcast in the world? It's the, the Guinness Book of Records just declared it. I, be- I believe they're waiting for uh, affirmation on that. Maybe we have to send, you know, some sort of notarized certificate or something. But I do know this. We can call this our uh, very special holiday episode as we're recording this uh, a few days post Hanukkah, a few days po- uh, before Christmas Eve and Christmas. So let's just call this our gala special holiday episode. And we've got a great interview, of course, for this perfect holiday episode. Yeah, Ron Wixo. Ron Wixo did an interview with us. Uh, not the first Dave-related drummer we've spoken with, but probably the most in-depth Dave drummer interview we've done, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. He was a hell of a lot of fun. And uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with Ron Wixo, if you saw Dave anywhere on the Your Filthy Little Mouth tour uh, for about eight straight months in 1994, well, that was Ron on the skins and you probably, you may have seen him also play with geez, who has he not played with share foreigner. Yeah. Um, his, his, his resume. Storm. Yeah. The storm, his resume uh, is, is unbelievably long. And we also found out he's connected with another interviewer uh, played in the same, what was it? Baseball or softball league in LA uh, <laughs> that we heard from with uh, a, another for, uh, DLR guest interviewee, uh, Jesse Harms. That's right. You picked up on that and you said it during the interview before I did, because I was thinking for a second, wait, maybe there were two rock and roll softball <laughs> games in that era in L.A. that hard rock guys are playing in. But no, he and uh, Jesse were in the same softball games and the circles just got even smaller and smaller that we're kind of learning in this David Lee Roth Van Halen circle. Yeah, it, it, I was having deja vu for a second there when uh, he mentioned that. I'm like, wait, this sounds familiar. Hey, I, 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 we got to find out who else was. <laughs> we have to get a couple more interviewers, <laughs> a couple more interviews from people who were in that. I because there's from people who are in that league because it sounds like it goes pretty deep. <laughs> yeah, I, something that I'm really, really curious about. You know, take really detouring this whole thing. When you get those softball games and all that, you kind of go. Weren't these guys in the studio or on the road all the time? When, how could they all find the time to play in a softball game? Just like when you say, how is Steve Lukather playing on sessions 300 plus days a year and in toto and on tour? Yeah. I don't know how <laughs> these people stayed awake and kept those schedules going. Well, I got an idea how a lot of them stayed awake in the 80s. So. <laughs> uh, and probably may have made some time to play very energetic softball games. Um yeah, that is funny you mentioned that because in the summertime, most of those bands were on on tour even back then. You know, I mean, you had the big summer shed tours and yeah. uh, I'm sure there was there was probably enough people. Maybe there was uh, there was that top tier folks who were on tour on those headlining tours during during the summer and maybe some other folks that weren't. Who knows? But nevertheless, Ron was a was a hell of a fun interview. Really interesting. Had some great Dave stories and uh, we think you're going to enjoy it. Absolutely. And as we learned about during that interview, he played on a David Lee Roth rarities live kind of thing that it does exist. I had to do some research after this interview. Yeah, uh, the uh, 
and we'll put it in the show notes actually, but that surprised me too. That uh, it sounded like a promotional only EP recorded from a, uh, a, if I remember correctly, from a radio broadcast. So uh, was it Rockline or something? Westwood one, yeah. So it's uh, and with a couple songs from your filthy little mouth on it. So and Ron, of course, did not play in the studio. Uh, did not play on the record. So, however, we. But at least yeah. it's documented that he was in that band because there have been people who've played with with Roth over the years who didn't get to be on a studio album. True, true. Yeah. And that I never did see that tour. Um, it didn't seem to make uh, where I was living at the time. But I think, you know, that tour was not an arena level tour, uh, although I was surprised it did go a couple places globally. I mean, I think. I think if I remember correctly, you mentioned and it says on his website, Ron Wixo.com, W-I-K-S-O.com. Uh, it did go to Japan. It did go to England. So mm-hmm. it did it did get out there for for a bit. And that as we talked about in the interview, I mean, that was kind of a uh, kind of a tough time sales sales wise, I guess, for Dave and uh, kind of back to earth, gritting it out on the bus in smaller venues. So. And if uh, you do need an incentive to stay tuned for this interview, besides learning about that rare live release, you do hear me asking what if David Lee Roth watches baseball, what he <laughs> likes to do on door <laughs> Exactly. So, exactly. <laughs> so there you have it. Episode 19's interview with Ron Wixo coming up next. Thanks for listening. Well, first off, looking at your discography, I'm just, you have played with a ton of people that are in my record collection, including folks that uh, I think more people should know about, like The Storm and Dave Menachetti, David Glenn Isley is another one. So, I mean, let alone David Lee Roth, which we'll get into in a second. But how, Glee, did you, both live and and in the studio, and share as well, I mean, how did you kind of evolve into being what's essentially an incredibly successful working musician? Uh, well, I'm lucky, first of all, <laughs> and I worked, you know, I obviously worked hard. You know, if you get the opportunity, that's one thing, you know, you have to have, you know, some level of, you know, know somebody or get, you know, have the op- have the chance to get the opportunity. But once you get it, you have to be able to, you know, do the job, right? So I obviously worked hard to be able to, to play those gigs, but each one of those is actually a little bit different story. Um so uh, let's see with with Dave with Dave Isley. I've known Dave since uh, I'm gonna say like '86 or something like that, '85 somewhere in there. Jafria. Yeah, it, he actually uh, he wanted me to join Jafria. Um, uh, that's I, I met him. We were playing. We we set this uh, softball game out in Studio City. And a whole bunch of musicians played in that game, like every Sunday morning, Ricky Phillips, Pat Torpy, Dave. You know, Dave was a minor league baseball player. I don't know if you knew that, Dave. I've, he- I've heard that before. And I think we previously had a guest who also played in that softball league. Jesse Harms. Played- Jesse Harms. Jesse Harms. <laughs> I did Jesse's solo album, too. Really? <laughs> this is okay. amazing. It's called, previous- the best of, it's called The Best of What I've Got. It's actually one of the favorite things I've done. I love his writing. So I've known Je- Jesse used to share a house with Ricky Phillips in North Hollywood. I used to go over there and record in their living room. Um, but anyway, yeah, Jesse was part of that. And uh, yeah, just a ton of ton of guys, Dave Amato, uh, Chuck Wright, you know, all kinds of people were in that game. And so, uh, you know, I auditioned for Jafria and Dave actually wanted me to join the band, but I think Greg Jafria didn't, you know, he wanted somebody else. I don't know who, I don't remember who they hired, but uh, 
and then it didn't really go anywhere anyway. But after that, Dave started doing some other stuff, and he kept asking me to play on all of it. So I did a three songs with him and Craig Goldie um, wow. that wound up being on Craig's um, solo record, uh, which the name of which escapes me at the moment. But there was three songs that we did like in the late 80s that he eventually put on that record. I think it was sometime in the early 90s. And then down the road, every time Dave had some solo thing, I, I wound up doing it. I just did two records with him in the last couple of years. One with him and Craig and one that's just a Dave solo record. And I did wow. another one uh, back in the early 2000s. He's still a good pal of mine. Dave, you know, Dave grew up with uh, the Picaro brothers and Steve Lukather. They all went to high school together. And Dave, you know, Jeff Picaro is, is like a big hero to a lot of drummers, including me. Yeah. And uh, he compares me to Jeff, which I find astonishing because, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I would never put myself in that category, but, but Dave is so kind and, and always so complimentary of my playing. And, and he's just always called me, he just likes my playing for whatever reason. Um, so that was the story of getting with Dave and I'm still in touch with him. You know, I, still, I still talk to him now and then. And, uh, uh, and then let's see, what did you ask about the storm? The storm was, um, I was in Cher's band. Well, okay, I'll start with that. There's, in Cher's band, I, that was just a, a cattle call audition. I got a call one day from a friend of mine who said, hey, you know, they're, they're auditioning people for Cher. And this was in 1989. And uh, I, you know, was able to get an audition. And, and I think there was like a hundred people literally on every instrument they were auditioning. So you went to this audition and, you know, they took a picture of you and said, you know, okay, we'll call you or whatever. And I wound up getting called. It took six auditions to get that gig that you kept having to go back and they whittling it down, you know, like, and the, the last, I think the last two she was at, but she wasn't at any of the preliminary ones. She had a musical director and her staff or whatever going through everybody. And so then I wound up doing that gig. And then, so then I was in the, in the band and then um, I was re recommended to the storm uh, by actually four different people, which was amazing. Uh, Pat Torpy was one of them. He's a drummer from Mr. Big. Oh, and he yeah. was part of that softball thing, you know, and, and I became pretty friendly with Pat. And uh, he was managed, uh, Mr. Big was managed by Herbie Herbert, which is Journey's manager, right? And he was one of the managers of the Storm at the time. And uh, so he recommended me. Uh, and then I had, I had become friendly with Mickey Curry from Brian Adams Band. And he heard that the storm was going to be opening for Brian Adams in 92. And so he recommended me. And then uh, I also had a re recommended recommendation from Smith, Steve Smith, who was leaving the band. So I don't know if that was good or not, because I think they were kind of mad at him at the time. Uh, and then um, I think it was Dean Castanova might have been the other one. Anyway, that was another wait, one. Wait a second. Steve Smith and Dean Castanova in the same sentence, even though they're both Journey guys. You just mentioned Herbie Herbert. And that's a Journey guy. So yeah. Journey is spinning into this as well. well Greg, Ro Greg Raleigh and Ross Valerie were in that band. And you played yeah. with Greg, Greg in the Greg Raleigh band. Oh, for okay. years. Greg and I have been close friends oh. since, since I joined the Storm. Okay. Uh, when, I, you know, when, I, when I joined the Storm, or when I auditioned for the Storm, um, is when I met Greg, you know, and, and uh, we, we hit it off right away. We became really good friends. And once, once I joined the band, I stayed at his house for 
I don't know, several weeks or months while we rehearsed and got ready to tour. And every time I went up there, like when we recorded the Eye of the Storm album, I'd stay at his house. And, and then um, when we did the Greg's first solo record, which was 2000, well, we started it in 1999. It was ultimately released in 2001, I think. Um, but that we, you know, he, by then he had moved from the Bay Area down to San Diego. And uh, so he, he told me he didn't have any excuse to not come and work with me in my studio after, after that. So he would come up to my house and we recorded most of that. He, he did a lot of his vocals and stuff at his house, but all the um, drum tracks and guitars and stuff like that, we did in my studio. And, um, and then we started the band and we did, we, you know, we did the band till just recently, like a, a, a year ago or whatever, we stopped doing that. Uh, and, you know, and I've done, Besides the Eye of the Storm record with him, I've done three other records with him, which was Roots. Then there's a live record called Rain Dance, which I, you know, not trying to pat myself on the back, but I recommend if you like that Santana stuff. And, uh, um, and then uh, a recent record that he did called Sonic Ranch, which uh, Steve Lukather is on a couple of cuts and Neil's on a couple of cuts and... Uh, um, Alfonso Johnson. Alfonso's on both of the other Greg records as well. Uh, anyway, so yeah. So what were the other ones you asked me about? It was oh, it's oh, it's a Dave Menachetti. Dave Menachetti, YNT. It's a lengthy list, and we should say to to see uh, everyone you've played with, and uh, who, if you're listening to this, you likely probably have a good number of these albums and, and artists in your in your uh, in your record collection. Go to ronwixo.com to uh, check it all out and everything you got going on. Probably got to um, spell that because nobody knows how to spell the last name. <laughs> W-I-K-S-O. There you go. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Alfonso Johnson. He factored into Jesse Harms getting his big break as well. So right. we're learning softball Jesse Harms' journey still the cyclone is is going around alfonso i have to tell you alfonso what an amazing musician that guy is and a humble guy you know he was playing in weather report before jocko in the mid 70s you know and, and i remember the first time i did a session with him was in the early 80s or mid 80s and i just was blown away and then when i got in the band with him i was just like you know how am i playing with this guy he's you know and, and i you know I, I did the same thing with greg i one time i was in the car with greg coming back from rehearsal with the storm and uh one of you know i don't know it was black magic woman or evil ways one of those came on and you know he was the lead singer in that band so that's him singing and i just looked at him and i said that's you isn't it <laughs> he's just oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> but yeah and then the, the dave manichetti thing just to cap that off uh that was because our other manager in the storm was a guy named Scott Bure, uh, and Scott was YMT's manager for many years. And yeah. uh, he's currently Steve Miller's manager. And so uh, when Dave was getting ready to do a solo record, uh, Scott was the one who referred me, and I went up and stayed at Dave's house. We did the whole thing at his house. And actually, I just saw Dave about, well, almost a year ago now. He played in Austin, and I went down to see his gig. And, uh, right on. He's a super um, um, nice guy. Him and his him and his wife Jill are super nice people. Yeah, I've always heard that. I'm a huge YNT fan. I have the On the Blue Side album. I think that was his first solo record. So that's um, the one I played on. Yeah. Yeah, just just fantastic playing and love well, that album and love them. So love your playing too. So. Thanks. So speaking of speaking of playing, of course you're on the DLR cast. And one thing I so of course you played with with 
Diamond Dave himself, one thing I forgot about was the fact that you didn't play on the Your Filthy Little Mouth record, no, but you did was... the, the entire tour. Right, tour. right. Yeah. yeah so I... how did, sorry. No, go ahead. What was the question? I, I was going to say, so I, I, I mean, just, you know, tell us how that came about because I f kind of forgot that. And I know there was, there was a lot of different people that played on that record. And um, yeah. looking back, I think uh, <laughs> hindsight's always twenty twenty, especially musically, but knowing what I've seen live of the, of, of those shows, I wish you played on that record. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Um, yeah, that uh, there is actually some recordings. There's a, a two CD limited edition set that I'm on that came out of uh, that that band. But anyway, the way that I got in that band was um, Greg Bissonette referred me to that actually, and uh, uh, so I've known Greg also since the early or mid '80s. I guess we were both knocking around in LA, and I'm really good friends with uh, Matt, his brother, as well. Uh, who currently plays bass with Elton John. Well, when, uh, if, if there's ever any more touring in the world. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, Matt and I still do a lot of stuff, you know, remote tracks together. I hire him for different things that, you know, if somebody asked me uh, to, to get other musicians, I hire Matt. And, and he's on a bunch of recordings that I've done with, you know, my girlfriend and I have a project uh, that I'll tell you about in a little bit, but he's on that stuff. And uh, anyway, so Greg referred me to that. And, um, at the time, when, he, when I first got the call, I was on the road with a, a blues thing just for like a week tour over the, it was like between um, Christmas and New Year's, just over New Year's with a guy named Mike Finnegan, who's a legendary uh, singer and blues uh, B3 player. He's played with Jimi Hendrix and, and uh, he was in, uh, uh, he's played with Bonnie Raitt for many years and Joe Cocker and just a million people uh, anyway so I got the call and so uh, I went and um, auditioned it was like I don't know the week after I got back from that and so this was uh, like the first week of January of 94 and at that time the storm was still existed but we really weren't doing much because we made that record and and Interscope kind of you know, turned into a rap and grunge label and they really weren't doing anything for us. But we still had some gigs on the books. So anyway, uh, my audition with Dave was at his house in uh, Pasadena, you know, which is the same house where Van Halen rehearsed and got, you know, did all that stuff. And I was down there in the basement with uh, the guitar player and the bass player, which was Terry Kilgore at that time and Jamie Hunting. And um, so we just went through these songs that they had asked me to learn. And unbeknownst to me, Dave was upstairs listening. <laughs> he didn't show no kidding. himself. Yeah. So, and then, you know, he came down after, you know, whatever it was, a half hour or an hour or whatever it was. And, you know, said, hey, you know, you want the gig? Or, and so that was how I joined his band. And then, so for the first, like, three weeks of that gig, I, I had gigs with the storm. They were all up in the Bay Area. So the, so the gigs were at night. But I had Dave rehearsals during the day in Pasadena at his house. So, so what I would do was I'd finish the Dave um, rehearsal, and then I'd drive to Burbank Airport, catch a Southwest flight up to Oakland, and Ross or somebody would pick me up, and then we'd go do the gig with the storm. And then the next morning, Greg would drive me back to the airport, and I'd fly back down for Dave's rehearsal. And I did that for like two weeks. Um, it was, was brutal. <laughs> so it was, and my hands were killing me because that's a lot of playing 
and then plus the traveling and everything, I was just dying. But anyway, you know, got get through it. And then, uh, th so the record I, I was going to tell you about with Dave, uh, one of the first things we did was a, a uh, this show at Capitol Studios in Hollywood, and it was um, I forget what uh, it was like for Westwood One or something like that. And there was there was actually an audience, a very small audience. So you know, you could only fit like whatever it was, 40 or 50 people on folding chairs in the studio there. But they recorded that and it, and it became um, a double album or a double CD, like two limited edition. There's only like, I think five songs on each CD or something like that. And so it's out there. I think it's called Nightlife or, or something like that. Um, anyway, I didn't actually know. They were making, huh? I've never heard of this. Have you heard of this before, Steve? Nightlife? I have not. The only other songs I, I have it. Wow. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the story of how I got it too. It's pretty funny. <laughs> so, so we're in uh, we're in England, right? So we had done a, a short tour, uh, like a promo tour in the states, and then we went to Japan, and then we went to England. And uh, the one of the first gigs in England was, uh, well, the whole tour was Jason Bonham's band. Uh, I think it was called Motherload or something like that at the time they were opening for us and I was really, you know, interested in meeting Jason because I was a huge fan of his father's and all that. So the first gig at Soundcheck, when they were soundchecking, I went out into the house to, to listen to him. And when I went out there, there were all these flyers on the seats for this new David Lee Roth edition <laughs> CD. And it said live versions of, you know, uh, some of the songs from the, from the Your Filthy Little Mouth, uh, you know, record, but they were live versions. And I thought, how could there be live versions? You know, we're the only band that's played it live, you know, so the big train was on it and experience, I think. And then there was a couple of Van Halen cuts, Panama and jump or whatever, you know, whatever's on it. And um, so I was like, wow, I wonder what's the deal with this. So I asked the manager about, it. I mean, not just me, the other guys in the band, and they were like, oh, yeah, it's just this like little promo thing. It's no big deal. You know, the big deal to us was that they hadn't paid us for it. Oh. And so so the guy, the, his manager told me, he goes, oh, well, it's not even for sale in the in the stores or, any, or anything. It's just like this little promo thing we're doing. And I was like, oh, OK. So the next day I went down to Tower Records in Piccadilly Circus and I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, <laughs> I said, I thought it wasn't for sale, you know. I still never got paid for it. <laughs> oh, the record does exist. I even have a copy of it somewhere, although it's in a box. I, I'd, I'd show it to you, but I don't have it like handy right now. There is some research to be done. So I cut you off there because I never heard of that. You you just broke a story, Ron, that we'll oh. have, it's probably going to wind up on the Van Halen news desk. <laughs> but we took you off test, so you got the gig. U.S. promo thing. Then you went to Japan. Uh, so it was like 18 months or so on and off. Oh, it wasn't that long. It was, uh, I was only in the band from uh, January of that year till I think October of the same year. Because then I joined Foreigner in January of 95. That was essentially, basically the entire Your Filthy Little Mouth tour, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I did the whole tour. Yeah. For the whole cycle, I guess. So. Yeah. After that, I think he did his Vegas thing like a year or two after that. Yes, yes. The, the first time around. <laughs> the Mambo Slammers. Probably be thankful you were not doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I never saw it, so I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, Dave is an interesting guy, you know. 
I, I, you know, I had, I had an amazing experience playing all that music. The guys in the band were great. And, you know, Dave could be great too, but it was, I think he was going through some stuff at the time too, you know, it was like, it wasn't the same as like, you know, the uh, Yankee Rose and all that stuff. We were playing smaller venues and I think there was some, you know, record company issues. So I think he was a little stressed out, but. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask, what the what the mood and the vibe was like, because the shows that I've seen online, it looked like you guys were just, it just looked fantastic. And everyone's, of course, consummate pros. But at that time, I, you know, it was smaller venues, it was clubs. Unfortunately, that album, you know, died a pretty quick death sales-wise, at least in the States. Yeah. Yeah. And it had to, you know, you're you're at one level just a few years before, and then that's I mean. yeah, that's, just I, this that's level. I, that's why I think he was a little bit stressed out at the time. You know, I'm not, I'm not privy to all of the, you know, business or you know, things that were going on with him behind the scenes. But you know, it was, uh, it wasn't the same. You know, Brett Tuggle was on that tour, so he knew the difference between, <clears throat> you know, what we were doing then and what they had done on the you know the the yankee rose and all that stuff just like paradise tours or whatever those were called and i i'm pretty sure he told me that back then dave like you know had his own bus and you know it was all it was a much bigger scale than what we did and uh, dave was on the same bus with us at that you know in our tour wow. and uh, <clears throat> um you know and like i say a lot of it was great you know he was he was he could be great and then he could be like, you know, you, you had to be sort of like a little careful, like you didn't get a mad or whatever, you know. Um, but, you know, look, I, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining or anything because, you know, I had a great time with the band. Uh, everybody in the band was fantastic. And, you know, playing those songs, I mean, you know, they're classic songs, you know, even the stuff that was on the filthy little mouth record i enjoyed a lot of that stuff too you know it wasn't they weren't as big a hits necessarily obviously as uh you know playing jump or whatever but still you know the hardcore van halen and david lee roth fans they loved it i mean it didn't matter if we were playing to 500 people or 10,000 people you know we did do some bigger venues too you know uh some like fairgrounds and festivals and stuff like that and uh, theaters and you know so it wasn't it wasn't all clubs or anything uh, and even the clubs were they were bigger you know there's always a few thousand people at the gigs generally speaking uh, but it was it was definitely you know not the big the big Dave thing that you're used to seeing on the big giant stage with you know with all that stuff but but musically it was fantastic something that uh, on the musical end something that intrigues me about that era of David Lee Roth is stylistically your filthy little mouth is all over the place. He goes into blues territory and all that. Then the Vegas residency, a year or two after that, there's no guitars. It's a big band, no guitars. Yeah. The next <laughs> album we get, the DLR band album, it's some retreading of Hot for Teacher with, with Slam Dunk and that kind of stuff. So when you're joining Dave's band, are they telling you, hey, you have to play exactly like Alex? Or did you have free reign? No, they didn't say that. But my approach to uh, all of or any kind of a gig that I'm doing, Foreigner or whoever it is, is, uh, you know, to be true to the music and to, you know, if there's something in the music that, uh, that you would miss if it wasn't played, then you have to play that. That's what I, how I think of it, you know. 
Um, so there's certain parts that, you know, you just have to play it like the record or as close to it as you can, depending on, on what it is. Um, and the rest of it, as long as it has, you know, the right feel and is recognizable, you know, then, then, you know, you can have a little bit of license with it, but you know, like there are certain drum fills that, you know, if you didn't play the, that drum fill, it just wouldn't matter, you know, wouldn't make sense. Right. Right. They're just iconic to the song. Exactly. Yeah. And the same is true for guitar or whatever else, you know, so you got to play certain things or it's no longer that song. Right. So that's, that's just the way I approached it and kind of the way I approach anything. If I'm, if I'm stepping into a situation where I'm playing well-known songs, you know, did you have to learn every single Roth and Van Halen song to do it? Or is it like, here's the 20 we're doing on this tour. There you go. It was, it was that it was, here's, here's what we're going to do. And there was extras, you know, I think, I don't remember all of them, but, and then there was a few times when we did, uh, we would learn a song like a, I remember one time we learned uh, Dance the Night Away or something at Soundcheck and we played it, you know, started playing it after that. But we hadn't done it for, you know, the first several months of the tour and then he decided he wanted to do it. Um, You know, so there's always something like that, you know, where you just do something new to change it up a little bit, you know. Hmm. And do you remember how to play all those songs now and then I just cut off Steve there. That's right. Do you have, are you the kind of drummer who memorizes everything or do you have to chart out everything and then refer back to the charts? Uh, Well, my approach to learning songs, um, I guess, is a little bit different than, than some people like, you know, I guess it depends on how you learned how to play. And in my case, I, I learned, you know, how to read music and stuff. You know, Greg Bissonette is the same way. There's a lot of guys, Kenny Aronoff, I know does this too. And, and, uh, what I do is I listen to the song and I make myself a chart, but it's not like a note for note chart. It's basically like the form of the song and anything that I think is probably important in the song, like so specific, you know, punches or hits or drum fills or whatever. Excuse me. Um, So I write all that stuff out. And for me, usually, you know, it's easier for less complex songs, but, but the, the whole act of writing it out is kind of like, kind of almost like taking a picture of it for me in my head. So like I, you know, I write it all out. It doesn't mean I know it cold once I've written it out, but it gives me a good starting point. And then, so usually once I've written it out, then I'll, I'll try to practice it a bunch of times, you know, and kind of get to know it and try to get it under my, under my hands and feet and everything. And, and, uh, and then after you've done it for a little while, then you, you kind of have to, you have to sort of force yourself to not have the chart anymore so that you can play it without that. Um, there's actually a funny story about the Dance the Night Away thing. <laughs> I, uh, we learned it like, you know, that day, I charted it out in my hotel room mm-hmm. and uh, we're at Soundcheck and I put the, I, I used to have a, a, a Tom, you know, one, a drum right to my left. And uh, I just taped it to that so that I could kind of glance at it and look at it, you know. <clears throat> and I left it there during the gig and Dave saw it. <laughs> he was not happy about it. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing with that chart? And I was like, I just didn't want to make a mistake, man. <laughs> I didn't want to screw up your song. 
And, uh, but anyway, you know, it, it was fine. He, I think he was just giving me a hard time, but, <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, that's just how I go about it. I, you know, I, I probably still have a lot of those charts and like envelopes. I saved them all in case I ever need to use them anymore. Now I have, uh, I, I write them out and I scan them and I put them on, a. um, I have an iPad with a, a music, um, you know, like a music thing. I forget what it's called. Anyway, it's one of these things where you can put charts in your iPad. And uh, so for the CCR gig, uh, when I got when I got asked to do that gig, um, I had like two days to learn the songs and go do the gig. Like there was no rehearsal. So it was just go over some stuff at soundcheck and go, you know, play the gig. So I, I had to have the charts. There was not enough time for me to like remember 20 songs with all the little, you know, things that are in those songs. So I put them on this iPad. And the cool thing about the iPad is when the stage goes dark, the iPad is still lit. So I can still right. see what I need to see. And I can, all I have to do is hit one side, you know, you just touch one side of the screen and it will advance to the next song. So I just put them in the order of the set list and I could just hit, you know, go through them. So I was, I was reading the gig basically trying to look as much as possible. Like I wasn't reading it, but, but I had to, cause it was such last minute, you know. It, it sounds like, I mean, you have to be incredibly versatile. I mean, what really impressed me is that here, you know, it's probably a Tuesday you're playing with a storm and Wednesday you get a call from uh, Greg Bissonette and the next day you're thrown deep into the fire with songs that you probably hadn't even, outside of the Van Halen stuff, that you had probably hadn't even heard before. I mean, I don't even heard. think the record, the record I don't even think was out in early 94. I think it came out sometime like in, I want to say April or May. I just remember it being a very rainy spring day when I lived in Albany, New York, and I yeah. cracked that open. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't remember the release date, but yeah, I had never heard any of that stuff before, you know, from that record before we played it. I actually saw Niall Rogers not too long ago. He played in Omaha and I went there. He was play, opening for Cher, in fact. No kidding. And uh, I know, that, so Richard Hilton is one of his keyboard players and he's worked with Niall since probably the 80s, I guess. And Richard actually came and played some shows with us with Dave. And that's where I met Richard. So I saw Richard at the gig and then I saw Niall. And I said, hey, by the way, I played on that stuff with you or that you produced. And then, you know, and he said, and he goes, oh, you played Big Train. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, yeah, well, Rick, Niall, Niall, of course, produced Your Filthy Little Mouth and Richard right. Hilton played, uh, played keyboards on a couple right. of tracks. Right. And, and Niall, Niall was at the Capitol Studios thing that I told you about where Nightlife came, came out of or that, you know, that, that limited edition thing so i did meet him during that but I, I had never heard the songs before i got in the band so yeah you know i mean that's the whole like versatility thing you know i when i was growing up learning how to play i wound up having to do a lot of different styles of music you know and, and that's true for guys like greg bissonette and steve smith you know they're all greg and steve are great jazz players and i've played a lot of jazz too, but I'm not on their level with that stuff. Um, but, you know, it's one of those, one of the, uh, I guess, benefits of, of having done some of that stuff is that it, it allows you to be able to transition between different styles of music, maybe a little bit more easily if you've been exposed to some of that stuff, as long as you can do it without, um, you know, like 
don't bring your jazz thing to the rock gig. You know what I mean? Like, and right. vice versa. You know, you you kind of have to stay uh, in the in the music that you're playing. Whether you know, even if it's not like your favorite music, you have to do what you know, serve the music, do what the music calls for. And so, some people, if their thing is like that, they're a jazz guy. They have a difficult time transitioning to playing like rock or pop because they want to do their jazz thing in the in the context of those songs, and it doesn't doesn't always work, you know. So that was something that I I remember talking to guys like Greg and other people like that, you know, about that type of thing, and you know, being able to kind of transition between that stuff and and uh, you know, try to try to be, you know, uh, versatile, but still, you know, keep the focus where it needs to be. And the versatility thing, quite honestly, has been one of the reasons why I've been able to work, you know, it's mm -hmm. because not, you know, not every gig is the same, but if you can kind of, you know, do what you need to do for each gig, there's more opportunities. And being able to read also helps too, because if you're ever uh, asked to do something, that requires it, you can, but if you can't read, then you're automatically not available for that gig, you know? <clears throat> that so. makes sense to me. So you, is it you left Dave's band and then Farner happened or they somehow paired into each other? So Dave's, D Dave's tour ended, right? It ended in, uh, I think it was like the first week of October maybe of that year. And, uh, so then I was just kind of hanging around and uh, a guy that I had gone to college with, I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston for two semesters. Um, a guy, a friend of mine, Tom Gimbel was playing uh, with Farner. Uh, and actually he was going back at that time, he was going back and forth between Farner and Aerosmith. He was, and he plays keyboards and sax and guitar and sings. So he's kind of like, similar to like Brett Tuggle, he's very, you know, kind of like the utility guy. He can cover a lot of different parts, you know. Yeah. And uh, really good at all of those things. And uh, Tom still plays as a foreigner, actually. So he recommended me. And I knew uh, Mark Schulman, who had been playing with foreigner, and he was leaving to join Simple Minds. And uh, I remember the foreigner guys were very upset about that at the time. They had him erased from the cover of uh, the rec the Moonlight Mr. Moonlight record on some of the copies of it. But uh, anyway, um, uh, I, they since, you know, made up. Or <laughs> but, uh, um, and then he's gone on to play with Cher. And, we, you know, we've done a lot of the same gigs, me and Mark. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so Tom recommended me. And um, I'm trying to think of if there was anybody else. But so I went up flying to New York to audition for Foreigner. Mm -hmm. There's another, you know, thing where they had like, I don't know how many guys, 40 guys or whatever it was. And uh, they asked me to do the gig. And it, it, the, the funny thing was uh, they had the same management as Dave. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they had, uh, it was called Hard to Handle Management, Steve Barnett and Stuart Young. They also managed ACDC, I think, at the time. But anyway, so I already knew the managers, um, you know, from having been in Dave's band. So uh, there you go. And the career keeps going, you mentioned before. I, I'm sure Steve and I might have another Dave or question or two that comes to mind, but you said that you have a project with your girlfriend that you've been working on as of late? <clears throat> yeah, it's actually been going on for a while. Uh, 
my girlfriend's name is Marcy Requist, R-E-Q-U-I-S-T. And uh, her website is marcyrequist.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, uh, you know, had never really made a record, but she's always loved music and she loves to sing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she went through some tough times and so did I. I had a divorce and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, you know, we were messing around in the studio and uh, she, she, uh, the music is completely different than any of the rock stuff that I've done. It's, it's, uh, the, the record, the first record we did was called Covers of Comfort. And the idea behind the record was, you know, comforting music. It's mostly ballads, a lot of covers. We did a version of Hallelujah and Make You Feel My Love, which is a a Bob Dylan song and, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. And uh, it's basically for, you know, kind of music for people who might be going through some, you know, some rough times or whatever. And, uh, uh, and then we did a couple of Christmas songs and, you know, uh, it's, it's a, a whole other style and a whole other type of thing than, than any of the stuff I did with Dave or, or foreign or any of that stuff. It's not a rock. In fact, some of the songs don't even have drums on it, just percussion or, or there's a couple that are just her and a piano, you know, and uh, it's really cool. I, I really like it. And uh, Matt, like I said, Matt Bissonetta is playing on it. And uh, my, my good friend, Kurt Griffey played guitar on it and Kurt uh, and I played with CCR and, and Greg Raleigh together. Mm-hmm. And we played in an all-star band uh, with Randy Meisner from the Eagles and um, Spencer Davis and Danny Lane from Wings. So that's where I met Kurt. And then uh, uh, the keyboard player is a Grammy-nominated guy, Wally Minko, who's played with everybody from John Anderson. Yeah, he's in the Bissnet Brothers band at the, the moment, the Redcoats. The Redcoats, that's right, yeah. Um, Wally is a close friend. We have known him since the 80s. He, he's... Uh, Play with everybody from Jean-Luc Ponty to Pink to Tony Braxton to Arturo Sandoval and you know, just a ton of guys is a brilliant piano player and uh, he so that's that's the core band the the sax player is a guy named Tom Evans who he, he's on a couple songs he played uh, currently plays with the Eagles actually and uh, uh, he's done stuff with you know uh, Carly Simon and Carol King and Rod Stewart, U2, all kinds of people. Um, <clears throat> so it's a great bunch of musicians and Marcy sings like an angel and, uh, and it's, it's fun stuff. You guys should check it out. Tell everybody to check it out. <laughs> you, yeah, you were just talking about Kurt, who you played with in CCR, who I saw a couple of times in the last three years or so touring. Kurt looks like he should have been in the David Lee Roth band. He, he, was, he would have been, looks like it, he plays like it. He would have been great in the band. In, in fact, it's, the way that I met Kurt, or no, I'm sorry, the way that I met Marcy was because her and Kurt grew up together. They've known each other since fifth grade. And so I've heard all the stories about when they were in high school and, you know, Van Halen was the thing, you know. And so he he knows all that Eddie stuff. He he could have done the the Greg or the, the Dave gig very easily. And he was great in the Greg Raleigh band. You got to, you should hear him on, uh, the rain dance cd the live cd he's great on that and he's on some of the songs on the the new one sonic ranch kurt's on a, a few of those songs <clears throat> and talent and serendipity pays off for you, <laughs> has paid off for you immensely that's for sure just the connections and you know how you've met these people and of course i mean clearly it's 
it's incredible talent. I mean, that versatility just kind of just always blows, always, always impresses me as basically a very non-musician who doesn't get out past his basement. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I love hearing the, you know, the behind the scenes stuff for any artist. Uh, of course, particularly for Dave, because of this podcast, which totally behind the scenes, which surprised me, is that you guys all shared a bus, which I'm not sure if that's either the most coolest thing ever or the most aggravating thing at some point, or maybe some, you know, maybe some points in between during, <laughs> during the tour. Well, when you're on a tour, you know, I mean, uh, you spend a lot of time with people. So if there's you know, if there's stress or whatever, it can get a little weird. But you know, most of the time, as long as you're with guys that you can get along with pretty well, then it's it's great, you know. And I have to say, knock on wood, uh, most of the stuff that I've done, that's how it's been, you know. It's difficult to stay in a band on the road if you're a jerk because people don't want to be around it. And, you know, unless you're the principal and it's your gig, you're going to get fired if you if you rattle too many feathers or whatever you know and so most yeah. people figure out you know how to get along reasonably well and and really for the most part i've gotten along you know been very fortunate everybody i've worked with for the most part has been pretty cool to work with no but doubt you gotta be greg's band was our, our whole thing was you know if you're a jerk you're fired because <laughs> we're not we're not out here to not have a good time you know right well i mean when you're out on a full tour, you're spending more time with those four, five, six guys in the band than you are anyone else, your entire family. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I look at bands as just being these, these uh, you know, enclosed little sociological experiments because you well, learn people skills smallest, fast if you don't know them. Yeah, the gigs are the smallest part of the tour. You're only on stage for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours a night. The whole rest of it is hanging around and schlepping to the airport or getting on a bus or getting on a plane or whatever, you know, it's, it's not, you really get paid for the, for that stuff. The gigs are free. I was just going to bring that up. I've heard numerous uh, musicians say, say that exact same thing that you're really, you're getting paid to travel and the two hours a night is, is, is free and the funnest part, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, you know, obviously, I mean, look, I, I'm not complaining one bit. I've gotten to see the entire world and I've gotten paid to do it, and I cannot complain about my life. I've been very lucky. I know a lot of people who wish they'd had those opportunities, and, you know, I'm very, very grateful and thankful for all of that, you know, regardless of whatever ups and downs or trials and tribulations there may have been during some of those things. It's been fantastic. I mean, you know, what 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 I complain about, <laughs> you know, other than I didn't make zillions of dollars. I guess that's the only thing. I have a stupid Dave question that's going to be a, a sound a little fanboyish. And the Dave Lee Roth that we know in 2020, he speaks like five languages and martial arts and he's shredded and he knows all of his calligraphy and his drawing. Like he does everything well and he's practicing skills all day long. In 1994, what is Dave Lee Roth doing on the tour bus? Is he like watching baseball? Any <laughs> no, I don't think he watched baseball. Um, well, I mean, some of it I really can't repeat probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Dave, Dave is a very interesting guy. He's maybe one of the most unique individuals I've ever met. And, you know, he's very smart, you know, obviously. 
but he, you know, he can kind of go off in a million different directions and it's hard to know which one it's going to be, you know? Um, and yeah, very talented, obviously, you know, the whole martial arts thing. I know he's been doing that since he was young, you know, that's where all those kicks and all that stuff come from. And, uh, you know, I, I think, look, this is total speculation on my part because I haven't, I haven't talked to Dave in 26 years or whatever it's been, you know, since I toured with him. So I don't, I don't know any of the intimate de details of his life, but um, from, you know, what I saw when I was around it, you know, his, his world is kind of like, just like his world. He's not married. He doesn't have an immediate family. Uh, he, uh, he has, his sister used to come out with us occasionally. Um, you know, and I don't know whether he really has a, a lot of, you know, close friends. I know he's got like his entourage and stuff like that. Right. But, um, you know, on a, just like a, how you or I might think of, you know, our buddies like, go visit our friends and go have dinner or something like that. I don't know that Dave does that or not. I, you know, I, I really don't know, but he's got a lot of time and he's got money. So, you know, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to scrap around for, you know, to make sure his mortgage is paid. He can sit around and figure out calligraphy or speak languages or whatever, because he's got the time and the means. So you know, I mean, good for him. Congratulations, Dave. <laughs> that, that's the answer I was basically anticipating <laughs> looking for, but I thought there was going to be, and you know what? He never misses a Notre Dame game on a, on a Saturday. Cause you hear things like that, like Kerry King from Slayer. I'd heard from like a friend of a friend that Slayer would not tour during the NFL season. Cause Kerry King did not want to miss any games. And you go, really? I don't know if the NFL and Slayer go hand in hand but okay. Well, you know, a lot of people, I, I'm a big sports fan too. You know, it doesn't mean I'm not going to tour during sports season. <laughs> um, and like I say, you know, the, a lot of, a lot of guys, I played a lot of sports growing up. So I really enjoyed those softball games and uh, uh, you know, guys like Dave Isley, like I was telling you, he, he was a minor league ball player and he's also a martial arts guy. I think he's a black belt too, you know, so he's always, you know, people have other interests besides just, the music, you know, no. the music is great. <laughs> music is great, but you know, I you know there are some guys yeah. who really that's all they do, you know, and and their abilities show as a result because they're so good, you know. But yeah, the focus is really, you know, honed in. <laughs> yeah, I would bet you Steve Lukather has a guitar in his hand right now. I, if I were betting that, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Neil Sean <laughs> is like that too. Every time I've been around Neil, he's always had a guitar in his hands. Except at the NAM show where you have to walk around, but you know. <laughs> Steve, anything you want to add? Because uh, I, I took that into weirdo territory. Oh, sorry. This this was a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, you're, you're you, once again, ronwixo.com, W-I-K-S-O.com, uh, the discography, an incredible, bi incredible biography on there, everything you're doing now. Um, I just... <laughs> the, the amount of people you've played with yeah. uh, in the studio or live, I mean, uh, we're talking high up in the double digits, if not triple digits. It's just, it's pretty, it's amazing and fascinating to me. Yeah, I don't think my website is even up to date, but thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> in fact, I know it's not up to date because I've been meaning to update it for years and I never get around to it. <laughs> One of these days I will. But yeah, uh, you know, I've been very lucky, like I say, you know, of course, there's 
lot of other guys who've done way more than I have, you know, Greg Bissonette being one of them, Greg's unbelievable, you know, and he's, he's worked with just everybody on earth. Pat Boone included. <laughs> like, huh? Pat Boone included. Pat Boone included. Yeah. And Ringo and, you know, just, I mean, he's, he's just done amazing stuff and good for him. He's a, he's a great drummer. He deserves it, you know. Totally. Ron, I can't thank you enough for your time, man. And wow. Looking forward to seeing what's coming next from you because it sounds like you're not sitting there idly during COVID-19. Oh, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to keep things going. I, you know, speaking of other interests, I've, I've gotten deep into uh, trading stock options and futures too. So <laughs> I, I've seen that on your Twitter feed. <laughs> oh, have you? Yeah. Yeah. You've got, you've got a few things on there and I'm like, Wow. Okay, this is pretty deep stuff here. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to make a lot of money, follow Ophir Gottlieb on Twitter. That guy okay. is genius. I may or may not be writing news for a financial website. I may or may not be. I cannot say. I cannot deny. But I feel you on the stock market. Yeah, man. You know, you if if you can uh, learn about that stuff, it can be very intense. And I I do I do a lot of uh, studying about it and. I find it really interesting, but it's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there too. And this year, shockingly, with the, the COVID thing, it's been an amazing opportunity. If, if you would have looked at the markets in March, you would have thought, oh my God, the world's about to end and nobody's, you know, all the stocks are going to go to zero or whatever. And then it turned out to be unbelievable. So. Yeah, Mar March, uh, I was pulling my hair out and it took an amazing amount of willpower on my part not to look at any of my 401k or any of that stuff. And I successfully never looked at anything until the end of the year. Well, just literally a month or two ago, I was like, I mean, I pay attention to what's going on in the world and the news out there, but just purposely did not look at anything. I'm like, whoa, this is <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is, I didn't see this well, coming back in March when I thought the sky was falling well, on, you on know, the stock market, at least. You know, I think it's, I think it's good to be, I know most people don't want to get into the weeds on all this stuff. So they're, they're what you would call like a passive investor, right? You just put money in, into a, an index fund or something like that. And, you know, just let it go or whatever dollar cost average. And that's great. That can work fantastic. But Warren Buffett, he had a really good bit of advice, which is to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So if you were greedy in March, you did really well because okay. everybody was fearful. <laughs> this, is, this has been one of the more impressive episodes. I got to tell you, first off, a musician with incredible financial acumen, I know has got to be a rare thing. And it's definitely, I think the first episode we've done with three primarily native Long Islanders all <laughs> growing up, all growing up within a few exits of each other, I think. Yeah. So. Karen, where are you from? I'm from Belmore, but I live in Long Beach. That's where you are now? That's why I am now. Joan Jett is on this block. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> I, I grew up, or didn't grow up, but I, I uh, one of my other friends from uh, Berkeley College of Music was from uh, Long Beach, Bobby Maxton. And okay. uh, his, his dad was a judge there, Judge Maxton. This is back in the 70s and 80s. This town also gave the world Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater, but he doesn't oh, yeah. have to talk about it. <laughs> He's an amazing drummer, too. For sure. Uh, this town has had a big impact on a lot of things. The Godfather is supposed to take place here, but um, they filmed it in Staten Island and said it was Long Beach, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ron, 
we're sending people to your website. They're checking out the music. Anything to add? Anything we may have missed? No, I mean, I appreciate you guys even wanting to talk to me. And I hope I didn't insult anybody. <laughs> the opposite, man. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Steve.